flashed up. It says the connection to go to meeting server has been lost. Are you still hearing me? Yeah. Yeah, your network connection has been reestablished. Do we have time for him to uh, at least install Windows 98? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we do not. Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Drowning Mona, a year 2000 black comedy directed by Nick Gomez, starring Danny DeVito, Bette Midler, Nev Campbell, Jamie Lee Curtis, Casey Affleck, and a bunch of other folks in roles both large and small. Its positive review percentage per Rotten Tomatoes is 29%, and the critics' consensus reads... Despite Danny DeVito's top billing, Drowning Mona drowns itself in humor that never rises above sitcom level. Contributing to the Mona's problems is that the characters are never really interesting, and there is a noticeable lack of energy in the character roles. That is a pretty harsh assessment, but today we're not concerned about what the critics thought. Myself, this is the last film I worked on as a production assistant before I started the DGA training program. And my three guests today were fellow crew members. First, Winnie Lampasi, welcome back to Below the Line. Thank you. Glad to be here. On Drowning Mona, Wendy, you are our key second AD. Now, we've chatted about your resume before. So rather than review what IMDb lists as your best known for credits, let me note that your earliest film work per IMDb, is it true that your first credit was as a set decorator? It was. I was, I was hired as a set decorator because I was organized. And a production designer really wanted someone to AD the art department. And did you have AD aspirations at the time? Uh, I had already been ADing some independent movies, but this was the first one I got paid for at a low rate, but I was thrilled because most money I'd ever made. Well, welcome back, Wendy. Glad to have you. Also with us today Thank is you. Scott Buckwald, uh, the prop master on Drowning Mona. Hello, Scott. Hello, Skid. Now, we've also talked about your IMDb resume before, so diving a little deeper, I noticed that you were a PA on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it says it was uncredited, and it's also the very last of your PA credits. I'd like you to explain. Yeah, I'm surprised it was uncredited. I thought I was in the credits on that. I had never even heard of it when I had gotten the job. It was a friend of mine who was a, a really big fan of the series, and I was able to get him as a, a PA as well. But we ended up working as prop and art department PAs. Was it your intention to work in props at the time? If not props, art department, I was still thinking I did Ninja Turtles the summer of 1988. So I had only been in the business not quite a year at that point. So I don't know if I knew exactly what props was at the time. I mean, I really still don't. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. And in our final chair today, we're joined by David Clark, who also worked in the prop department. He was the assistant property master. David, so glad you could join us. Glad to be here. Now, David, using IMDb again as a reference on people's resumes, it lists Drowning Mona as your last film credit. But I know you did some work after that. Uh, what are you doing now? Now I'm renovating houses. And if that was the last credit, that was because Scott got bored putting my credits on IMDb because I never learned how to do that. <laughs> well, that's probably, probably a Actually, good context for that. Dave, our last job together was American Pie 3, right? 
Yes. Once that was done, that was when I left, like within that month. Right. Because I'm just noticing on IMDb, that's where my career started to soar. <laughs> I do that. I, I have that effect on everybody I've ever worked with. And I think we've also captured our first lesson for listeners who want to work in the film industry. It's up to you to keep your IMDb resume up to date. Uh, well, thanks everybody for joining. Today, we are going to talk about Drowning Mona. Now, folks, that wasn't a good uh, review from the critics, but again, we're talking about the time we spent. However, I watched the movie again recently, and I don't really know how to get into this. The note I took was that there were a lot of Yugos. I know that was a challenge for the transportation department, but I'm not quite sure where to go with that. It was just a story point. I, I think even in the beginning of the movie, isn't there a, a title card that says that the town of Verplank was chosen to be a test marketing site? It was done just to make the movie quirky. And I think if the movie, I don't want to say failed because I actually enjoy it, but I think there was a lot of kind of heavy handed attempts at quirkiness in the movie. And I think the, the Yugos was one of them, though I, I think it's funny and I think it kind of works. Let's dive in on that quirkiness a little bit, because, again, I think it was you're right. It was the intention of the film. But um, what other areas, either in your departments or what you saw in other folks departments, do you think that quirkiness played a role and affected what we did? The whole movie was supposed to just kind of always be left of center, not politically left of center, just a little on the odd side. I'm trying to think of movies that came out around that time. I, I felt like this movie was kind of one of the last of that train of, of movies. I don't think anyone ever really took the movie seriously, but I will say the script was way better than the outcome of the movie. It got chopped up during editing. So when do you think we filmed uh, a better movie that got stuck on the on the floor? Yeah, I agree with Wendy. I was actually I worked with Nick Gomez earlier this year on Queen of the South. He directed an episode and Nick and I were talking about the movie and he said it was a very frustrating project for him because the movie he wanted to make was not the movie that the producers were allowing him to make. What was even shot on the day was not really flushed out and survived the editing process. I think yeah. the producers were looking to do it on the cheap and Nick was looking to do it on the creative. Yeah, because when you read the script, it was really funny. What we shot and the actors did were, was really funny. And then when the movie came out, I was like, yeah, not so much. Not so funny anymore. But it was fun to make. Fun to make. David, let me turn to you. What are uh, some of your memories of working on that set? I remember... There was one day, half the crew was working night, half during the day, because Scott and I had split up. He had just worked, no, he had worked the day. So I came in the afternoon. I wasn't feeling well. Uh, he leaves. We've got to get a second unit shot of a chainsaw, just the chain going around the bar. It was hot. By the moment, I was feeling worse, and I had to sit there holding this trigger on a chainsaw, and the fumes were making me more and more nauseous. And I kept stopping and going over to the shade and whoever was directing the unit was getting annoyed. They're like, come on, we got to get a shot. we got to get a shot. So I do it. Um, we get the shot. They're waiting for the crew to show up. People are starting to get something to eat, move to the set. And I'm over setting props on the set. And the next thing, I'm running into the bushes and puking my guts out. Eric, uh, John Nelson's brother, Eric, was one of the PAs, I think. He had quite a bit of experience with <laughs> dealing with this kind of thing because of previous activities in his life. So all he, he sees me on my hands and knees in the ivy just puking. And all he does is, uh, hey, man, um, you want some Sprite or something? <laughs> so I was like, no, no. Um, but somebody's got to get Scott on the phone. 
because, I mean, I, it was all I could do to stand up. And then the word got back to production that the prop guy, the on-set prop guy, is puking in the bushes. And Bette Midler was going to be filming that scene, the first up that night. And she heard that the guy, the on-set prop guy, was sick. She was getting ready. As soon as she finished filming, she was going to go out on tour. And she's like, I can't afford to get sick. No, He can't come to set. So that was when they tracked down Scott, get him to come back. And then the last thing I see as I'm walking away from the set is the set dressers were spraying disinfectant on everything I may have touched. And <laughs> But Beth was very nice. She saw me walking down the driveway and somebody said, that's the guy. Is that him? Is that him? And she said, I am so sorry. I don't mean to be rude. I just cannot get sick. I'm about to go out on tour. And I just, I can't take a risk on getting sick. And I said, I understand this thing. So I spent the rest of the night on the floor of the prop truck, shivering and sweating and having stomach cramps while Scott tried to stay awake on set. And then the next day was much better. Scott, do you remember this incident? I do. I don't remember getting called from home. For some reason, I feel like I was nearby, but I, I do remember. You probably hadn't even gotten home. Right. But I do remember having to take over because Dave got sick. Well, I don't remember a lot of those uh, split days. It's also possible, as I said, I left the show early to go start the training program, that I wasn't there when this one happened. But, Wendy, do you remember in the scheduling a lot of split units on this? You know, I don't. I know we had a lot of split days where we, you know, part day, part night scenes. We had a, a lot of night scenes. I don't remember Dave getting sick. I do remember a lot of shenanigans that Dave and Scotty did. <laughs> like at the Disney Disney uh, ranch when we were shooting all the near water scenes with the dead uh, well, Bill Fickner's body in the water. You know, Dave comes walking up and waders up to his chest, up the water. I have photos of that. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't part of the movie. It should have been. <laughs> part of Wait a minute. Dave, David just walked up in water, in, in water waders? Yeah, yeah nothing else. Pond. No shirt. No shirt. And I think I had my funny teeth in. Yeah, you were wearing the no. funny teeth, too. Oh, oh, there was another fun. one. We were filming at the uh, the cabins, the motel-type yeah. cabins. Yeah. And Nick is the director. He wanted to have a woman come running out of one of the cabins and jump in her car. And then I come running out, again, shirtless, barefooted, <laughs> grab her out of the car, smack her a little bit, and send her back into the room. And I remember that. <laughs> typecasting is everything, isn't it? And, and that was the kind of humor, I think, that... Nick was trying to infuse into this epic that just fell flat. I have a memory. I was in the prop truck one night, and the, the truck was relatively close to set. And uh, Bart, the executive producer, and Nick come off set. And uh, Bart is constantly looking at his watch because we're probably into our 14th hour. And Bart is looking at his watch. And I remember Nick catches eye of this. It looked like something that had probably been happening for a while, and Nick had had enough of being rushed. And I remember he all but grabs Bart, and the two of them have this knockdown fight right on the lift gate of my truck. Either they weren't aware that I was in the truck, or they didn't care that I was in the truck. But I'm just sitting there, and I didn't have a side door. It was a smaller truck that I had at the time. So I'm like stuck in the truck as mom and dad are like screaming at each other. Nick just going, you know, if, if you don't want me to make this movie, then tell me right now. But you can't keep coming to set all the time and, and speeding me up. Do you want to wrap now? Either we wrap now and we all go home and we don't get the shot or you go away and you let me finish. But we can't have you sitting there constantly looking at your watch and giving the let's go sign. And I was just there for like an endless 15 minutes of the two of them going at it. 
Yeah, I remember that. There was a scene where there was like a band was playing at a bar. Okay, wait a second. I'm going to interject. It wasn't a band. It was Three Dog Night. And you never saw them in the that, movie. That's what right. it is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I knew it was It was actually the group Three Dog Night. Which is ridiculous that we had Three Dog Night in the movie and we, we missed it. <laughs> they got cut out. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that it was like they were famous people and mm-hmm. I just couldn't remember who it was. But that was... They were, it really was like two kids, like, fine, I'm going to quit. You can't quit. You got to get the shot. Outside of um, that pair and some animosity, I will say working on this movie was one of the most fun experiences that I ever had because not only did we have a stellar cast, and by the way, this is one of Melissa McCarthy's very first movies, um, and also Will Ferrell. And he just played a small bit part. Right. He was one of his first. I remember the, the day Will Ferrell showed up, I wasn't even familiar with him. And I no. remember his whole bit was near, he was standing near a tree. And I remember I'm hanging out talking to him. And I actually kind of thought he was very funny in the same way that, that Dave is funny. Very similar approach. And we're just you mean, hanging out Dave, talking. You mean, you mean Dave, our assistant prop master, is funny? Yes. With the fake teeth yes. and the no shirt and the waiters and such things. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Dan, uh, uh, Will Farrell wasn't quite as highbrow, but funny nonetheless. <laughs> um, and I remember when I walked away, Dave was like, you know who that is, right? And I'm like, no. And he's like, Will Farrell. I'm like, it still didn't register on me. And he starts telling me that some of the Saturday Night Live stuff he was doing at the time. And then I, I kind of caught on because I don't remember if I was really paying attention to Saturday Night Live much anymore. So it's funny because so I when I watched it again, I had forgotten. In reference to actors on this show, I got to say two of my or three of my favorite people on the show besides um, like Dan DeVito, I adored working with. And, and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, but Bill Fickner, William Fickner, who played Phil Dearly, he is one of the most genuinely nicest guys and great actors. And he, he's like one of those people that you just wish would hit it big and really get known for something, but he's always kind of been a character actor, but he's an amazing actor. And then also um, the Pauls, we have Paul Ben Victor and Paul Schulte playing the two um, goofy cops. So funny to work with. And I feel like a lot of their slapstick does survive into the movie. Like the two of them going back and yeah. forth uh, was almost self-contained. Like uh, So I think that that did deliver um, in the final product. Yeah, every scene that you see them laughing at each other, they were really cracking up about whatever they were really talking about, but they were laughing genuinely. Yeah, both of those guys, it really was like they were feeding off of each other. They were like came at it like they were a team. And it's so funny that you mentioned that, Wendy, because I see both of them on so many things now, you know, Law and Order or just different things that I've seen over the years. And they're always playing like, you know, the tough guy or the bad guy. I I haven't seen him do, you know, those goofy characters again. One of the things about Danny DeVito, he was coming from the perspective of somebody who has to hand actors props every morning. He didn't like to have stuff. I don't think he even wanted to wear a wedding ring. He always just got annoyed that he had to have things. He didn't want to have stuff in his hands. But I remember in pre-production, Scott and I went up to his house just to, you know, show him wristwatches and wedding rings and, you know, just things that he might need to have for his character. And so we bring our, you know, boxes of things in. 
and we meet him in his like garage or his gym or something. And you know, he welcomes everybody in and he goes, Hey, uh, you know, good morning. How's everybody? Thanks for coming up here. Hey, can I get anybody a water or some juice or something? And everybody's like, no, 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 we're fine. And then Scott goes, Dave would like some toast. <laughs> and, and Danny DeVito's like, oh, you want some toast? I'll get you some toast. Yeah. He likes grape jelly too. You want some toast with jelly? He's like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. He goes, I'll get you some toast. You can have you. If you want some toast, I'll get you some toast. So like, no, 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 thank you. I'm fine. Shut up, Scott. <laughs> part of the part of the precursor to that was that Bart the, the producer was so nervous about Dave and I going to Danny DeVito's house and I'm in Bart's office he's like you guys have to be well behaved and I don't want I don't want you to upset him and I'm like Bart I, I've done this before I've tried props on actors many times I got it. he's like but you always say please and thank you and and then when we get back to the production office and Bart is like, all right, so what happened? What happened? He was so concerned that we would have done something. And I, I start shaking my head, putting my head down, shaking like, oh, we really blew it. And Dave is just immediately following along. And Bart's like, what happened? And I go, you know what? We tried apologizing. And I don't know. It just the whole thing just went south. Bart is turning white because I don't think Bart was used to, sh to working with such big A-list actors. And I don't think Dave knew at the time where I was going with this, but Dave is immediately immediately playing along. And Bart's like, what happened? What happened? I go, well, we get there and everything is going great. Uh, Danny offers me his hand and he says, you know, nice to meet you. And Dave goes, oh my God, you were just adorable. And he picks Danny DeVito up and just starts shaking him like a little kid saying how <laughs> cute he was. And he got really offended by it. We didn't really do this. But we're telling Bart that David picked up Danny DeVito and started shaking him, saying, oh, my God, you're just adorably cute. And he got really pissed off and he threw us off the property. <laughs> Bart is just dying thinking that we actually did this. I do remember that. He, he was heavier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Scott, David, had you guys worked with Bart before? Was he aware of your we, antics yeah. and why he warned you or just uh, yes. your reputation preceded you? Well, at that point, if we hadn't had a reputation, we make a reputation pretty quickly. We had worked with Bart on a movie called Scorched that also had John Cleese on it. So I think we kind of established our reputation with Bart on that movie. I mean, definitely, I will say one of the fun things about when Dave and I work together is just feeding off one another. Not And it wasn't always just in, in goofing around. I mean, there is something just in the seriousness of props when people are on the same page. It, you know, it goes with one of the things I loved about working with Wendy and John. There was a, there was a certain likeness amongst your department, which was always pleasurable. Yeah, John and I have done, John Elson, the first AD, I think we've done like 17 movies together, maybe more than that. We kind of help each other's weaknesses because we're very opposite personalities. Dave you know? and I, Dave and I always figured if we could just get over the sexual hurdle, we would be the perfect couple together. <laughs> I agree. We love Dave, antiquing. Do you, do you remember what we did with the peanut butter sandwiches with Nick? No. There was one of one of the ads or somebody had called on the walkie that Nick wanted a peanut butter sandwich and a diet coke, and I used to keep my walkie right near a little cassette recorder. So I would record, yeah. I, oh. I recorded whoever the AD was, sentences, you know, just various commands. And then I'd wait 20 minutes, half an hour, and I'd play that recording back over the walkie. So on the walkie, I there's a recording of an AD going, craft service, can I get a peanut butter sandwich and a Diet Coke brought to set for Nick? So I wait about a half an hour and I play that over the walkie. And I hear craft service, not realizing they're talking to a recording, go, yes, right away. They bring it to Nick. 
And at this point, Nick just thinks they're being nice. You know, they're bringing him another sandwich. So I wait, you know, another 15 minutes and they bring him another sandwich. I think by sandwich number six, he has like peanut butter sandwiches stacked all around his director's chair, cans of unopened Diet Coke. And finally he's like, what the hell is this? Why do you keep bringing me sandwiches? But we would also do it for cruel reasons, too. I mean, there would be times where, you know, Wendy would get on the walkie and go, you know, uh, Skid, could you come to set? And I would just play that later. And then, Skid, you would come to set, go, Wendy, what do you want? Wendy would go, I never called you. (laughs) You're just mean. That's just mean. But I just remember doing that over the walkie. And Dave and I sitting together on the walkie, like two little kids with that suppressed laughter. As I'm playing the recording, just not wanting everybody to hear the two of us laughing like two idiots in the background. Now there's giving a little more context to the (laughs) idea that when there's a split shift, Maybe not have you both there at the same time. So having Dave and Scott together on set always makes everything fun. My nephew, who is now traveling Europe at 28 year old, he came to set when he was 10, and you guys taught him how to eat food out of the trash can, which is you know you put <laughs> a nice paper towel down on top of the trash and put some potato chips on top of it. Then you walk by the trash can I'm like, oh, someone threw that away. Pick it out and start eating it. We, we did that with Bart one night. I can't remember where we were. We were at, I, I I almost want to say we were downtown LA or something, and it. It was late at night and Dave and I had taken a piece of paper towel and we put it in the street, like right in the gutter. And there was garbage all over the place. It was nasty. And we had taken pieces of bagel and we put the bagel on top of the on top of the paper towel to keep it clean. We just left the bottle of water on the floor and we're just standing around looking at each other. And Bart kind of like notices us and he's like, what are these two idiots going to do now? And David all of a sudden points to the piece of bagel on the in the street. And I reached down like pick it up. I tear it in half. I kind of smell it. I give him a piece and we start eating it. Bart looked like he was going to throw up worse than David throwing up from the chainsaw gas. Another one of our our stop things was if there was ever tension on set that was coming across over the walkie talkies where, you know, something is taking too long to set up. They can't find an actor to get to set. And, you know, you can just hear the tension and the stress building on the walkie-talkie. People are shouting commands back and forth and asking questions. I would always like to, however you want to perceive it, break the tension or create more tension. I'd like to just throw in whoever was, like if it was John, the AD, if he was just giving out some orders or questions or whatever, then I'd come in a pause say, hey, uh, John, it's David from Props. Yeah, what is it? What do you think we're having for lunch today? And you couldn't really rattle John because as frustrated as he might be after all of that, I'd throw in, what do you think we're having for lunch? And he'd come back with probably fish, chicken, and meat. Now, can I get the actors to... (laughs) It is amazing how the camaraderie with the crew and the interaction between the cast and crew. I think when I watch that movie now, I do see the movie almost as a as a living scrapbook in a way. I, I will say of everyone on the crew, my experience was probably the best with Jamie Lee Curtis. She reminded me of like that cheerleader type kid in high school drama club who was so excited to be there. When we were working on Drowning Mona, to Jamie Lee Curtis, that was the best movie she had ever worked on. Whatever she was working on was always her favorite project. I just remember her wanting me to do graphics to make t-shirts. And, you know, she was like the person who would bring, she didn't actually bring cupcakes, but she was the person who just always wanted to do stuff and keep things moving. I think that was a pretty enjoyable set to work on all around. It was, it was. I remember um, we were at a, the gas station and Danny DeVito had to come up onto the car. He had to walk in later. And I don't even know if this scene actually made it in, but I had to cue Danny from one of the offices in the gas station. 
And we got stuck in there so long because the dialogue was long before he walked in. And then during lighting setups, and they would change camera angles and lighting and everything. So he would just stay in there with me and we'd play cards. This went on for like two days. We were just stuck on this set. And he and I were in the office by ourselves the entire time until I had to cue him to go out. And they, we played cards. We played card games. Very funny. And I will say a nice story about this crew. Richard Toyin, who's a production designer, who's an amazing production designer with a very long list of credits. The house that was Bette Midler's house, Bette, the Dearly's house in the movie, there was no kitchen. This little old lady, she's got to be in her 80s. Her son had ripped out her kitchen intending to put a new one in. So all she had was she had folding tables setting all of her food on folding tables around the kitchen. She didn't have a sink. She didn't have anything. And it had been years since her son had written, uh, ripped out the kitchen. And so the movie, actually, we paid to put a new kitchen in her house that wasn't just a prop kitchen. We actually, Richard designed a kitchen and we left her with a kitchen when we left. It is probably important to note that it wasn't just a prop kitchen because it was not. It was, how working, many times, it was a real kitchen. How many times have people been on set in a prop kitchen and then someone comes in and tries to use the sink or put something on a garbage disposal in a yeah, prop the, kitchen that doesn't work out so well? Using yeah. a prop kitchen is a little more acceptable than people trying to use a prop bathroom. <laughs> My very, very first day ever on, a, on an actual movie set um, or working in the art department, uh, one of the art people had given me a five-gallon bucket of dirty paint water to get rid of. Now I would know that I would usually give that water now to Dave and he puts it in cans and sells it as custom mixed paint and gets a pretty dollar yeah. for it. But back then they told me to dump it down the slop sink. And in the middle of the set, there was a, a set with a slop sink on it. And I didn't realize that it was just part of a set. So I'm standing at the sink and I'm pouring this five gallon bucket of water in and I'm just watching it go down the sink. And all of a sudden my feet start getting wet. <laughs> <laughs> I look down and the water is pouring out from under the, the cupboard of the sink. And as it's happening, all of a sudden, I kind of look around and I realized it was a prop sink and it wasn't connected to anything. And I just kind of scurried off, got paper towels and cleaned it up before anybody noticed. But now the story is out. You know, when you were talking earlier about the Yugos and you could see this if you watch the movie. Remember, we had a police station. It was like Mount Washington or something. It was on. It was up on a hill. So there's a scene where Nev Campbell gets into her Yugo and drives off. And then she arrives at the police station. So now we, we cut to inside the police station. We see Danny DeVito at his desk and the camera sees Nev Campbell drive up to the police station. The camera's inside the building. She gets out of the car. And if you watch in the movie, what happened is because we were on a steep hill, the parking brake popped on the car. And as Nev is walking into the building, the car starts to slowly move out of frame. And a bunch of grips who were standing on the street all ran up and grabbed it by the back bumper. And, and luckily, the car was tiny enough and it hadn't started gaining enough momentum because we were on a big hill. I mean, Dave and I would have just stepped aside and let the car go just because it would have been better for a laugh. But if you watch the movie, you could see the car all of a sudden just start rolling out of frame. It's where she ran into the police station. That you yeah. see the car just, and then they added a crash. Oh, they did. They, yeah, there's a sound effect when she's in there talking. Oh, that's funny. The other reason we couldn't, Scott and I would not have rushed in to stop the car from going down the hill was because we were prop and somebody would have called 44 and filed a grievance that we were touching a vehicle and putting a teamster out of work and we would have been fined. So Yeah, so it would have been better. Just, yeah, just let the car go. And maybe even that puts the medic to work as well, gives him something to do. It's a win-win all around. It's a win-win for everybody. <laughs> Well, that 
that's that's as things go, that's a pretty small challenge. Were there other larger challenges on this film that you guys remember? Okay, we did have quite a few challenges in the, the movie. One of the uh, main ones is because we were shooting, I believe, in La Cañada, and it was so many hills with the Yugos rolling away on a continuous basis, but also with just getting craft service close enough to the set because you had to have everything on wheels. The trucks were all so far away. Everything was so far away that it just made it a little bit more challenging. I will, okay, so one of the best memories from the set, I will say, is um, the Deerly House is one of the very first places that we shot in. So that's kind of where we all got to know each other. And Bette Midler, in between takes, there was a piano in the living room. So she would play. She would play and she would sing. And so you got kind of a private concert from Bette Midler anytime you're doing a lighting setup. All the cast on this never really went to their trailers in between takes, like a lot of actors do. You know, they go and regroup. Everyone, Jamie, uh, Nev, Danny, but they all stayed on set and just kind of hung out, which has made it easier and faster. And that's also goes back to what I was saying about Jamie Lee Curtis, that I think the, the movie has a certain spirit to it when that exists. If the movie was not all too successful, I think whatever success it did have was in part to the movie that Nick was trying to make. But that the fact that the cast was it was very much an ensemble cast. And I didn't feel that division between cast and crew, especially on this movie. I mean, when you look at, at you know, Danny DeVito, Bette Midler, Jamie Lee Curtis, those were three major Hollywood A-listers at the time. And the movie was very small. And never did I feel like they were giving us charity. I never felt like they were being put upon or, or anything like that. It always felt like a huge, huge movie. And when I look back on the movie now and I see how tiny a budget it is, was it's almost surprising that that movie was able to get made with the people involved in it. I always wonder who pulled the favor to get the cast that we had. We had an amazing cast, which is such a bummer that the movie itself was not amazing. The acting was superb. It just didn't cut to where it was. But I will say one of the other drawbacks or hard things about this is that the actors were always there a couple hours earlier than the crew which means I was there a couple hours earlier than crew because we had a lot of wigs. We had a lot of bad hair in this movie, on purpose, bad hair. And so we had a lot of wigs and a lot of makeup. We had to put wrinkles on Bill Fickner because he played Phil dearly, but they wanted him to always look like beaten up kind of guy. So his wrinkles are literally drawn on. It was a great makeup and hair department. So to that point, Woody, yeah, let's talk about that uh, a little more. So if you want to start at, say, 9 a.m., those actors and the hair, makeup and the assistant directors that are overseeing that um, are all there early. Uh, and in this case, as you mentioned, hours possibly uh, to get the wigs and the makeup all set. Quite an extra challenge on a day like that. Oh, it's a challenge every day because I think every single person, even Casey Affleck, had a wig. Danny is the only one that did it. All the other actors, the main characters, all had wigs. But yeah, we were there. If crew call was nine, then we would have been there at six. Probably because you only had so many hair and makeup chairs to get them through. So you had to rotate and have everyone ready when the, you know, when you started shooting. But it was fun. They all kept a good attitude, always. Actually, the union now is, there's all these initiatives that we're not allowed to be working more than 12-hour days. They're really trying to cap that. That's something that went into all the new contract negotiations. Just the danger of crews working so long that the days of the 16-hour days are hopefully yeah, in the past. As long as they're paying you. No, they were saying that, that it's that it's too dangerous, that there have been too many accidents on set. Just finishing Queen of the South, Fox said at 14 hours, they don't care where we are, 
the plug is to be pulled every day at 14 hours. They want crew in their car at 14. Right, but that's 14 shooting hours. So when you're talking here, makeup departments and transpo and ADs, everyone else that's right. there two or three hours early, you're still talking you know, 17-hour day. I'm not familiar with um, uh, the ideas of limiting the time on set because I've also been out of the business for some time. But, uh, yeah, Wendy, even with the extra hours there, that would, I think, be a fundamental change, at least some of the sets I've been on. Oh, it's horrible. My longest day, of course, this was on a non-union show before I became DGA. I had my longest day ever on set was 27 hours. I did horrible. a third. I did a 32-hour day on an L, in an LL Cool J music video. Yeah, music videos are worse. Those are always yeah. those are ridiculous. you never went you never did a, an average day on a music video was 18 hours. One time I got a paper cut and then I peeled an orange and oh the pain. Was that from Drowning Mona, David, or are you bringing in stories from other films as well? No, no, that that was probably Drowning Mona. I ate a lot of oranges on that, and with the paper that I was handling, it was very likely I could have gotten a paper cut. So, Wendy, I feel for the 27-hour day. Yeah. <laughs> Preaching to the choir. It doesn't compare, David. It doesn't compare to what you went through with the orange <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. I, I appreciate that. One of the comments you Wendy, you had made about the camaraderie on the set, you know, with the cast and the crew and just everybody, everybody got along so well. One of the things that I always had a hard time, not really a hard time, but it just wasn't as enjoyable for me to watch the end product of a movie that I worked on. I, I couldn't really get into the story because the whole time I'm watching the movie, I'd say, oh. That was when I was behind that wall doing this thing with Scott. And so I'm not paying attention to the story, but I'm remembering what we were doing while that camera was filming those actors. From my perspective, it's like the the story of the finished product of the movie is second to what happened day to day. Plus the fact, Drowning Mona is a good example of it, that it seemed like there was so much more footage and funny stuff that we witnessed day to day that didn't make it into the final cut. This was a letdown to watch it after having been there while it was being made. It's like, this should have been a funnier movie to watch from the audience's perspective because there was some really funny stuff that was put out there that just didn't make it. The, the actors just took everything so far. There's a scene in the movie with Will Ferrell and, and Melissa McCarthy. And again, they were kind of unknowns other than Saturday Night Live at the time. But there's a scene that you can see Jack Dearly, Jamie Lee Curtis, and um, uh, Phil Dearly yelling at each other when they find out that they're all having affairs, you know, there's a triangle of affairs. Uh, Will Ferrell and um, Melissa McCarthy come out of the cabin next door, and they're in this S&M attire. And they're like, guys, shut up, be quiet, we're trying to, you know, we're busy over here. But that scene, actually, there was so much more to it. And had people known who they were, there would have been so much more. Like I'd love to see the footage that was cut out, just Melissa McCarthy and Will Ferrell, because there was a lot that we did with them that was funny. Another thing I noticed watching the movie is the scene where Bette Midler is dead and they're having a wake for her. We had to cast an actress, because Bette didn't want to lay in the casket, because she couldn't see her. We had the lacy thing over her face. So we had to cast an actress, put her in a wig to match Bette's hair. And she just laid there and you literally, never see her. It was like 12 hours that she was, poor lady was laying in this casket. Cause we, we had done some close up shots. So we tried to get a look alike. And uh, you never even saw her. We could have had a dummy in there or a pillow. <laughs> <with a> wig <laughs> on it. One of the things when it comes to professionalism and seasoned actors that we had, we had a few actors that were very new to the whole thing. And one of them kept uh, kind of showing up late 
every day, not knowing his lines. And they were new and they're bigger now, but I remember Danny DeVito had to pull them aside and have a talk with this person and remind them while they're there, how many people are waiting for them to be there. When they're showing up late, it postpones everyone in hair and makeup and on set and you're waiting. And, and it, but it was kind of funny because I was right around the corner when Danny was having this talk. You could just see see the face and it was, you know, you're getting scolded by Danny DeVito. <laughs> it was very funny, but it worked. It worked. The, the showing up on time every day after that. I'm sure that actor's career is going great now, thanks to Danny DeVito. You really put him on the straight and narrow there. I'm sure it all turned out. It is. <laughs> It's going very well now. We talked earlier about uh, the challenges of some of the locations. Did we do any stage work on this? Yeah, I, I honestly, think it was no. all on location. I don't remember going into anything that was a complete build. It was all on location, and we were literally all around the city of L.A. Well, and I think that speaks to the challenge when you were talking about uh, the difficulty uh, earlier of getting craft service close. It was tough to get for everyone getting close on those things. When you shoot at a stage or a, a, a studio lot, you've got specific areas for trucks and both the crew trucks and the hair makeup trucks and the actors trailers. But when you have to find places to park all those vehicles close to where you're shooting, it makes for a, a more difficult shoot all around, except for props. Props is always easy. Yeah, but the prop truck always seems to get parked further and further away every job I do. It makes more sense to have the truck with the peanut butter sandwiches closer to the shooting camera than it does all of the props. To be fair, more people want a peanut butter sandwich than a prop. No, I'm, that's true. I see the point on that. And also, if every 30 minutes on the radio, you're getting a call for a peanut butter sandwich. Scott, I think you could consider that irony. There is, there is a, cer a certain cruel irony to that. I, I can't remember if Nick Gomez, the director, if he referred to himself, somewhere along the line, Nick Gomez was known to many people with NG. We had worked with Nick, it was year, a couple years later, um, he was directing an episode of a TV series we were working on. So Scott and I put on his director's chair for that week, we just put NG. But apparently in the camera department, when something was bad, like I guess if it was the, I don't know, a, a roll of film that was no good, they would just label it as NG. So a producer saw NG on the director's chair and it was all we almost got in trouble for it because they thought we were insulting the director of that that week's episode and so we had to explain that and there was there was a point to that story when I started but it's lost somewhere now I think the point was don't put NG on a director's chair if everyone doesn't realize his name is Nick Gomez I mean that's Maybe the way I see it <laughs> And maybe not even if people do know it's Nick Gomez. <laughs> what other memories from this one, guys? Uh, the scene where they're all taken off at the very end where they hear that, what's his name? Nick Gomez. Jeff Dearly, sorry. <laughs> no, at the scene at the very end when they realize that Jeff Dearly has a gun and he's in the graveyard. And they're all at the cabins. Because Danny Vito had pulled up in the cop car. The two cops pulled up. It's right when um, Jamie Lee Curtis's character is trying to take off. The orchestration of all the cars, everyone, Danny DeVito leaves in his cop car and he tells everyone else to stay. And then there's a split second. Every single person is jumping into a car. You have Catherine Wilhoit there with her tow truck. You have two cops, the Paul's there with the cop car. You have Bobby and his brother there and all get into the cars and they all have to take off. And there's so many, we had to do that over and over and over again because there's so many times that the car, the youth almost hit each other. 
where one of the Yugos won't start. In that scene, Bobby and his brother, they actually had to push their Yugo to get started. I don't think that was in the script. <laughs> they actually had to like do a, a running start with the Yugo. And I'm pretty sure that was because the Yugo really didn't start. Do you know what happened to the Yugos at the end of the movie? I, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm just creating my own memory, but I almost feel like they wanted to give them away and nobody wanted them. I know that some of them must have been rented. I remember talking to the transportation coordinator and they were looking on eBay. And I remember, I think they had to send a car carrier to Colorado because they had found a whole bunch of, of old Yugos. And I remember wherever the, wherever the production office was based, there was just the parking lot was just full of Yugos. And I really do feel like at the end of the movie, they just couldn't get rid of them and they didn't want to have to store them. I mean, the cars really weren't worth anything. They really were just not worth anything. And I just, I feel, I kind of, and I'm surprised because if they were giving them away for free, I'm surprised Dave still doesn't have five of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that brings us full circle, guys. We started with the Yugos, we'll end with the Yugos. Folks, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun catching up on this. And that concludes our discussion of Drowning Mona. Thanks again to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends. Your recommendation is the best way for us to reach more listeners. Email me your feedback via skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter on both of those platforms. We're at podbelowtheline. You can also find photos and other supporting materials for each episode on Facebook. That's at Podcast Below. Next episode, we'll be discussing The Majestic, a 2001 film starring Jim Carrey and directed by Frank Darabont. And my guests will be non-professional background artists or extras. It's a different take on the movie-making experience, and I hope you'll join us. Wendy, do you feel like the babysitter who has absolutely no control of the kids? I felt like the babysitter has no control of the kids since I started in the industry. <laughs> okay, so I have left the meeting, but I still hear you guys. Um, but so we, okay. you're ghosting the meeting, basically. As in, as in, as in, all right, whose dog? That's mine. Sorry. They're getting irritated with each what? other. Uh, it's, it's amazing the lack of professionalism you have to deal with doing a show like this.